Hello, and welcome to another edition of EdChoice Chats. I'm Mike McShane, Director of National Research at EdChoice, and I am joined today by Paul DePerna, Vice President of Research here at EdChoice, and Drew Catt, the Director of State Research and Special Projects. We are talking about our EdChoice Tracker Public Opinion Survey. Now, some of you may have heard our earlier versions of this podcast as we release these results periodically and hop on the horn to talk about them. For those of you that aren't familiar with the project in general, we have partnered with Morning Consult, a, a polling firm, to pull a representative sample of Americans every month. We use an online polling strategy and use the magic that Morning Consult is able to do to ask them a big battery of questions, both about some general things around education policy, school choice, school funding, teacher policy, et cetera. But then because of the sort of periodic nature of it, we also have the opportunity to ask questions about issues of import in the events of the day. We are pairing that sampling strategy every quarter with a nationally representative sample of teachers. So we are talking today about the most recent iteration of these polls that were conducted in mid-June of the teachers. We surveyed a representative sample of 1,000 teachers across the country, asked them a whole battery of questions. And the newest results of that have just been made available online recently. If you go to edchoice.morningconsultintelligence.com, that's edchoice.morningconsultintelligence.com, you can get all this research that out there. We have some great easy summaries of it. We can see how it's changed over time. And if you go up in the resources section, you can download all the cross tabs and all the stuff that your numbers people love to allow you to get a better understanding of everything that's going on. So we're just taking about 20 or 30 minutes today to talk about some of the top line results. Obviously, you all can dig in and we could spend all day talking about these things. So I wanted to throw out to Paul and Drew just a couple of things that sort of stood out to me as I went through some of the slides that Morning Consult created, and I'd love to hear your responses to them. So obviously, when we look at uh, current events, the coronavirus is at top of mind. This is a time where states, districts are talking about trying to reopen schools and weighing up the various trade-offs that are taking place with this. There's a slide in there that talks about parents' concerns, you know, what they're worried about right now, which is we might imagine is a, now is a time where there's a lot of parental worrying happening. And the slide reads that parents' concerns have shifted towards children missing activities and meal supplements provided by schools and are slightly less concerned over their children contracting the virus. So, for example, when we do this split, the question asks, thinking about the coronavirus, how concerned are you about each of the following? And so you can either be concerned, which is a sort of compilation of those who said that they were very or somewhat concerned and not concerned, which for people who said that they were not that concerned or not at all concerned. So when it comes to students missing instructional time, 80% of parents are concerned and only 19% are not concerned. When it comes to cancellation of activities, it's almost identical where you have 79% are concerned, only 21% are not. Making up for free or reduced meals at home, 70% of parents are concerned about that. And when we actually ask that question about getting exposed to the coronavirus at school, it's now about 60-40. About 60% of parents are concerned about their child contracting the coronavirus at school, and 38% are not. So I'm interested in sort of your responses to that, because it would seem to me some of those things might shape the general opinion, the overall question that we have of how we think about reopening schools this fall. Yeah, this has been a really interesting question that we've been asking since March. And so 
right when the pandemic really started to hit and schools began to close and there was the transition to e-learning, we were able to include a battery of questions around COVID and help the general public, parents, and teachers feel the pandemic, how it's affecting them at home, how it's affecting the schools and the communities where they live. And the findings have been pretty consistent monthly where there has been, you know, this missed instruction time is, has been a top concern among parents and teachers as well. And so I think that, I mean, four out of five are saying that. And I think that really does force people to think about the nature of the instruction and, you know, to what extent can be accomplished online or remotely, which a lot of school districts just in the last few weeks have been reporting their plans, back to school plans. And a lot of the bigger, it seems like more urban districts are going the full virtual route, at least initially this school year. But and then we have other polling, not just our own, but others from Education Next. The American Enterprise Institute has teamed up with Echelon Insights. The Center for Reinventing Public Education have been surveying and looking at district websites and their reopening plans. And they're seeing just a lot of signals about the unevenness of instruction, especially online and especially for the more vulnerable populations of students. And so, you know, I think that finding stands out as well as some of the other ones where it's really just across the board, high levels of concern among the seven items that we ask about. And so there is a tension, just a general like tension that is being played out on the op-ed pages and the other kind of news media reports that we're seeing and, you know, online as well as on TV news. And so I think that this just appears they just kind of reinforce what we're seeing out there being discussed and debated in the public domain. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned some of those concerns and the reactions that parents have. So there have been there's two things I'd be interested in digging into in these results as well. So one an additional question that we asked was how many parents are likely to enroll their children into e-learning programs when they go back to school in place of physically going back to school? So the question reads, next school year, if your school or school district allowed for the option of e-learning instead of physically going back to school, how likely are you to enroll your child in e-learning or distance learning? And this is a fascinating finding. 35%, the single largest category of respondents, were very likely to choose e-learning. Another 34% were somewhat likely. So almost 70%, 69% of respondents said either very or somewhat likely. And then when he goes down to not that likely, that's only 15% of respondents shrinking below that. So Drew, I'd be interested in sort of your thoughts on what that means. If we're talking almost 70% of people when given the choice, right? This is, we sort of let them think of it in their own minds of what these things might look like. And a huge majority seem to say we want e-learning. Realistically, it makes me wonder about the last question about the concerns. And, you know, you said 35% would be very likely to do e-learning. Of that 35%, how many are saying that they're not concerned or not at all concerned about their child getting exposed to coronavirus at school? Because they have zero intention whatsoever of their child physically going to the school. So That's I feel like there, there, there might be some back and forth with those two questions, and we might want to rethink kind of diving into those. And hey, if there are any researchers that are listening to this right now that are interested in that deep dive, hit us up. We might be able to connect you with some data sets. But yeah, so it's really those two questions kind of connect in my mind. The concern with exposure at school versus the percent of parents that have either full intentions of homeschooling their child or at least no intentions of physically sending them back to school. 
Yeah, you know, and another potential reaction to this is homeschooling, right? So not even just using sort of the the public sector's e-learning, but actually just keeping your kids home. And so another question was asked, how have your opinions on homeschooling changed as a result of the coronavirus? And again, this is one of those interesting things that sort of as it was happening and depending on who you talk with and your sort of social circles that you run in, it was very, very common to hear people lamenting, having to keep their kids at home and complaining. And, you know, you heard, you saw like the social media memes of like, teachers should be paid a billion dollars or any of those. But, you know, when we asked the question, so now what do you think about homeschooling in the sort of popular zeitgeist, you'd think, oh God, like 90% of people must be against homeschooling. Well, uh, as it turns out in the sample that we asked, 25% of respondents said that they were much more favorable to homeschooling as a result of the coronavirus, and 37% were somewhat more favorable to it. And again, the numbers get a lot smaller when you look at less favorable. So the somewhat less favorable was only 15%, and much less favorable was only 11%. So we have this interesting e-learning component, but Paul, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Like, What does this mean for homeschooling? Yeah, I'm glad you pointed out the array of results and the different responses because, I mean, it's striking to see on the intensity, like on the extreme positions, I mean, there's a net 14-point positive difference between the much more favorable and the much less favorable. That's sizable. And then if you look at just the margin between the generally more favorable and the generally less favorable, you know, that's 62 to 26% and so it's a big gap of those having much more positive sentiment with homeschooling as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. And we're seeing this too in some other polling that's just being released. And we have some more polling that we will release in coming weeks that'll shed some more light on parents' views on homeschooling, much like in this question. And I think it just has people thinking, you know, what's possible? Maybe, and this is a little bit, you know, suggestive and speculative on my part, but reading these stories about parents who are now like bringing together other parents and like co-ops. And I think, you know, we're calling these now like, you know, pods of students together, which is like another variation on homeschooling. And and maybe parents, as they went through this experience and, you know, the spring months through the end of the school year, and maybe they're a little bit more confident now and feel better about what kind of schooling at home is like. People who are homeschooling in February and earlier probably wouldn't call this necessarily homeschooling. Maybe it's more like remote schooling or some other type. But I think that there could be big implications this school year for sure. It appears to be it's going to be a very disruptive and volatile kind of school year and maybe even beyond. And with communications technologies where they are today, the capabilities for parents to do this in, in creative and innovative ways. I think there just could be a lot of really interesting things that are tried out in the coming school year and probably shared online. And maybe some of these approaches that appear to be working well will catch and spread to other folks. And I would definitely echo point, Paul, about how, you know, those who are homeschooling in February may not see what some other parents have been doing over the last handful of months as homeschooling. As a uh, former homeschooler myself, you know, back in the 90s, we called them homeschool groups. Uh, we met at our local church and did field trips together and had, you know, the interactive classroom experience together. But yeah, when you talk about technology and the leaps that technology is making, especially in the realm of homeschooling, like for fourth and fifth grade, I would receive VHS tapes in the mail 
put them into the VCR and get the homework packet in the mail and do all the homework packet alongside a asynchronous, you know, taped class and do it that way. Now it's, you know, much more interactive. Students can be actually interacting in real time with other virtual or homeschool students from around the world. You know, you, you don't need to do a full actual family vacation trip to D.C. to learn about the nation's history. You know, there's virtual reality for that now. And yeah, talking about the technological advances, especially in the realm of homeschooling, anyone with a really good internet connection and a decent computer can pretty much go anywhere these days. Yeah, and it's been fascinating how sort of robust and resilient that statistic that we've been tracking has been over the course. You know, one of the beauty of the longitudinal nature of the way that we surveyed these folks. So we have data from March, April, May, and June. And that question, how have your opinions on homeschooling changed? That percentage much more favorable has been basically rock solid. In March, it was 26%. In April, it was 28%. In May, it was 26%. In June, it's 25%. So it's basically been pretty solid. So it wasn't like there was um, great enthusiasm that waned or that it was people learned over time. Like I think people, this seems to be a pretty, pretty resilient finding that we've had. Look, another finding that stood out to me that I think is really interesting and I think plays into a lot of the debates and discussions that we're having right now around school reopening. We asked it to both parents and teachers, and we can sort of go through each one for a second, but asking the question about levels of comfort with children returning to school. So we asked the question, based on what you've seen, read, or heard about the coronavirus outbreak so far, how comfortable would you feel with your child or children returning to school in August or September? And interestingly, amongst parents, 57% said that they were very comfortable or somewhat comfortable with uh, having their children return to school in the fall, and only 26% were, were not that comfortable, and 14% were not at all comfortable. Now, a sort of interesting comparison point that we have is comparing that to teachers. So we asked teachers the same questions. Based on what you've seen, read, or heard about the coronavirus, how comfortable do you feel returning to school in August or September? And what's wild is the numbers are almost identical to one another. So the very comfortable and somewhat comfortable, where it was 57% of parents were, 55% of teachers were. And even the next, that not that comfortable, while it was 26% of parents, it's 27% of teachers. So I would have actually expected a bigger disconnect between these two numbers, but there's relative unanimity here in roughly the proportions of people who are comfortable with these things. Now, it is worth saying that you know, 57% or 55%, while a comfortable majority, if we're talking about trying to win an election or like get a ballot measure passed, is a bit more challenging when we're talking about all of the people in America and what it has to do with their schools. If we have 3.2 million teachers or something like 55 million school children, even 43% of them or whatever the other side of those numbers are, we're talking about tons and tons of people. So that's like, when I first look at it, that's what I, I see, but I'd love to know, like, Paul, when you look at that, what, what do you see? Yeah, I mean, those are great points. I mean, where, like, on two levels, so, like, one about, you know, I think the, the pollsters and, like, researchers, we try to look for the, you know, the variation, and we're looking for those gaps and differences, and that's where the findings, you know, the reportable findings tend to be, and, like, what stands out. But, like you said, though, I mean, I think it's noteworthy with the similarities. And it appears to be this kind of shared feelings among current school parents and teachers about their comfort levels. And so we were talking about this recently. I mean, I think that 
a lot of the narrative and media reports or just in social media, Twitter, Facebook, the impression, at least I get, is that the numbers should be different. And what we're seeing in our polling kind of flies against what the impressions and the signals we're getting from Twitter and Facebook and other places like that, or even news reports about what's happening in the local district or even in some of the more national reporting we've seen in the last month or two. So I think that's interesting. And then also, yeah, the percentages, yeah, we're used to thinking in terms of like looking at majorities and like, you know, those big levels and how they play out, but the small numbers are still meaningful. So even, you know, looking at the roughly, if it's around 10% or 15% that are saying that they're not at all comfortable about going back, if you try to extrapolate that to the population we're observing, I mean, that's a huge number. It's millions of either students or tens or hundreds of thousands of teachers who are feeling that way. So that's another way to kind of, and like you mentioned, Mike, I mean, that that would have certainly implications for policymakers and for folks who are trying to kind of develop and anticipate what might happen back to school this August and September. So I think, yeah, I think those are yeah, really good points. And this is one that stood out to me as well. Yeah. Another one that I'd love to see an additional slice down of that data. And like, yeah, it's anecdotal, but I have a sister-in-law that teaches third grade. She's totally comfortable. There's a bathroom in the classroom. She has total control of the students that aren't really leaving her room at all. Versus my wife, who, as you both know, teaches at a large high school with over 5,000 students. As of now, based on the current plan, she would have 100 different students coming in and out of her room every single day, going across who knows what parts of the building. There's also that new study out of South Korea showing transmission levels of 10 to 19 versus younger. So yeah. All that to say that I really wonder um, if there are any differences if we split both the parents into K versus 912 and split the teachers into K versus 912, if we will kind of see any shifts one way or another, or if even within those subpopulations, the numbers would still be similar of two to five, saying that they would be not at all or not that comfortable. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think the idea of the, I think other ways of looking at this age of teacher, right? You know, so is it younger teachers who are more willing to want to come back versus older teachers? Age of students, so exactly what you brought up, teachers of younger children, and the regions, right? So is this an urban school? Is it a suburban school? Is it a rural school? Is it a place that's currently having some sort of coronavirus outbreak? Or is it a place where it's more under control? So a lot of those things are happening in the background there. You know, one thing, you know, we did slice the data already in the in the you know, what's presented there looking between unionized teachers and non-unionized teachers. Again, I think there's perhaps a perception out there that's, oh, probably unionized teachers would be more likely to not want to go back or a non-unionized teacher would. Turns out, no, about the same. Looks like the percentages that are very comfortable, very close to one another, the, that are somewhat comfortable, they're all very, very close to one another. They're, they're absolutely within spit and distance. A little wrinkle to that is that it's possible that the union teachers feel like they have a little more say over whatever policy is happening at the district level, whereas the non-union teachers may feel like they don't have that direct connection where they don't feel their voice is necessarily being heard by the district as much. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I was just jumping real quick. I'm glad you guys brought this up, looking at some of these breakouts among the subgroups of teachers or even of, of parents as well, because yeah, we didn't see any differences. I mean, this is kind of a little bit surprising to me that there was no real differences between union and non-union teachers on this question. We did pick up on other questions that we might get into 
later that there are some union non-union differences on other types of questions that we posed to teachers and then and even also by grade spans too so we broke out and this is just a side note to anyone listening and interested and mike you'd mentioned the page where we have downloadable files and we have all the cross tabs for these polls and you can look at among the teachers you can break out their results and see the results by how long they've been teaching and the grade spans that they are teaching and whether they're union, non-union, and, and some other types of groupings. And so I definitely encourage, uh, for those of you who really do like to wade into the numbers, to go and, and check out some of the cross tabs that we have available on our website. Yeah, it'd be really interesting. So I've sort of highlighted the stuff that I found interesting in the slides and everything came out. But as you said, Paul, there's a wealth of data that's out there. So I'd be curious, just from your perspective, like were there particular data points or or slides or presentations that stood out to you from, from this iteration of the tracker? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So there are some questions that we asked the teachers in our quarterly survey around retirement plans and about their mobility and where they were teaching. And I think that might be interesting. And we broke them out by sector. And so out of our thousand teachers that we survey quarterly, we're able to obtain completed surveys from roughly 200, about 200 private school teachers, about 100 public charter school teachers, and then a little over 700 public district school teachers. And we see some differences by sector when it comes to several of the questions on retirement plans and kind of the influences that those plans might have on their movement and staying in their schools or looking elsewhere to teach. And I was talking with our director of fiscal policy and analysis, Marty Lucan, who's really an expert on teacher pension plans and the, and the research around retirement plans for K-12 educators. And he noted that there were a couple questions and findings that seemed to be pretty interesting to him. And so he thought that looking at the question around how much has your retirement plan influenced your willingness to move or change jobs, uh, we see that among charter school teachers, it appears that retirement plans, they're more likely to be influenced when they move or change jobs. So 43% of charter school teachers said that it's a very influential, and you compare that to 24% for district school teachers. So charter school teachers are almost twice as likely to say that those plans are, are influential for choosing jobs and willingness to move or change jobs. And private school teachers look a little bit more similar to district school teachers, at least on the extreme response, on the very influential response. And so that seemed noteworthy with some sector differences. And then uh, another question along the lines of mobility, again, we asked how many different state public school districts have you worked for over your entire teaching career? It was clear two-thirds of the public school teachers said that they've taught in one state, and you compare that to 40% each of charter school teachers and private school teachers were said just one state. And so we see that there appears that charter school teachers and private school teachers appear to be more mobile based on their responses. And so a quarter of charter school teachers said they've taught in at least two states, uh, almost 30% of private school teachers and, and so on. So we have a nice slide that Morning Consult built for us that shows those differences again between sectors. So those questions seem to stand out just along the lines of teacher mobility, how retirement plans may hinder or uh, induce the movement of teachers to take jobs at schools. And that was one thing that stood out for me. 
One other thing that I wanted to uh, point out for the most recent surveys that we had in the field in June is that we tried to be responsive to just all the protests and really a lot of the things that were happening across the country in late May and in June uh, around the George Floyd protests and around racial bias and inequities. And so we, in June, included a battery of questions just asking people about inequities that they see as a parent either facing them or facing their children at their school and their community. And then we also asked the same questions to, to teachers as well. And so one finding that just kind of stood out, and this is just a real general finding, is that it's pretty consistent that like among parents, at least 15 to 20% of parents said they see a lot of inequities regardless of the environment. So they see 15 to 20% said that they see inequities happening at school, in their child's classroom, and in their community. And again, that doesn't seem like a huge number, but in this context, I think that's a big enough number, especially when they're saying that extreme response and they're seeing a lot of these inequities. I mean, I think that's something noteworthy. And then we just asked folks what they thought could be effective ways to reducing racial bias in these different environments. And so there weren't a lot of differences. So we gave the respondents five items and just about four out of five parents would say that any one of these things would be an effective, at least a, you know, a somewhat effective way to address racial bias in their child's classroom or in their schools. And so you know, that's just something that we wanted to look at, what kind of potential actions and things that we can do at large, whether it's sharing positive facts and stories and images of different racial groups, talking explicitly about race, setting good examples as teachers and as parents, or encouraging other parents and themselves to develop relationships across different races. And so it is just something that, uh, and hopefully we'll you know, be able to return to this general area to talk about maybe in another podcast with some outside guests. But I just wanted to mention that that was a new set of items and questions that we included in June, where EdChoice were trying to, you know, to be responsive to what was certainly a big thing that was happening in the country and continues to the present moment in terms of the protests and what's concerning a lot of people, particularly among communities, the African-American and Latino communities, is what's concerning them right now. Yeah, Drew, what caught your eye? Yeah, honestly, it was those two questions that caught my eye the most, especially when you're comparing like the charter teachers who say, like you pointed out, Paul, that say the, the retirement plan was very influential, but again, like they're likelier to than district school teachers to teach in more than two states versus like one and a half states on average. And I'm really also curious as to like, are those neighboring states? Are those different parts of the country? Why do they move? Then this is getting into a whole nother set of questions that aren't really pertinent um, to the slide decks or um, the tracker this month. But yeah, it's just just the fact that I personally don't know of any other sector outside of the public sector where people are that connected to their pension plan. I know like here in Indiana, it's a 10-year rule in order to get vested. And I remember like, I keep using my, my wife as my anecdotal evidence because, you know, it's very, very easily accessible anecdotal evidence. Uh, but I remember when she got to her 10 years, she's like, okay, now I can quit if I want. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like oh now i can finally change schools if i want to i'm like no like you could have changed schools but you just would have had to still teach at a public school run by the state 
You're like, oh, I thought I had to stay at the same district for 10 years. So I wonder how much of an information gap there really is. So it does make more sense for the charter schools for it to be influential because it may not go from, you know, one charter network to the other. But arguably, the retirement plan would be the same within the same state for a, a traditional public school teacher or a magnet school teacher. And just to follow up with what you just uh, described, Drew, and I was just looking at some notes when Marty and I were talking earlier today. And I'd love to quote you guys whenever there's an opportunity. So I'd love to just share what Marty described, because I think he really captured a lot of this around like how COVID is affecting teacher labor market and teachers generally. And, and, and so he told me that, you know, COVID is really making K-12 education messy, especially for teachers. Uh, and we've seen the recessions closing a lot of schools. And so, it, I mean, that seems to have caused many districts to be closing their buildings and moving totally online. And so teachers in some places are experiencing contraction, like private schools closing or decreasing enrollment. But you may see demand for teachers increase in other places, teach online or maybe to be tutors in school buildings or maybe privately. We don't really have a firm idea what the K-12 education landscape is going to look like in the you know coming months and years to come that coming out of the pandemic. And but I think you know Marty's point is, and he's echoed this before, but like our systems are so rigid right now for teachers and not set up to facilitate smooth teacher, you know, labor market movement. And really just to put it in layman's terms, for to allow teachers to choose and have a lot more flexibility in their working environments. And so that smooth flow of teachers, we don't want to penalize teachers for their mobility, which the current systems, especially in the area of you know, public district schools and the way those plans are set up, I mean, it really does penalize, especially the younger teachers and the newest teachers. So I just wanted to just wanted to mention that Marty brings up some really important points about uh, some of these findings around uh, teacher retirement plans and mobility. Yeah, well, gents, look, we could talk about this all day, but I think we've uh, we've reached the witching hour here. So, Paul Drew, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts. Again, for those of you that are interested in finding out all of the details here, you can go to edchoice.morningconsultintelligence.com. So edchoice.morningconsultintelligence.com. And I think as Paul said, you know, you can download all these great spreadsheets that we have if you're interested in the cross tabs and answering even some of the questions that we raised here. You should be able to, to do that. All of this stuff is sort of open source. It's out there for you to see the exact questions we asked, the information that we got and everything. So thanks so much. And we look forward to chatting with you again on another edition of EdChoice Chats. Thank you.